the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. It's a shame when you let somebody like him have an effect on you. You know, you wish you wouldn't. It's like when somebody's really mean to you and it ruins your day. Uh, you know, I, I remember a long time ago, somebody told me, you know, you shouldn't give that person the power over how your day is going. And I kind of feel like that way about Danny Rawling, you know. I think it's a shame that he was able to affect so many people beyond those he murdered. Welcome to the First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen. Today is part three of our three-part series on the Gainesville Ripper. So if you're just tuning in today and you haven't listened to the past two weeks, go ahead and listen, and then you'll have a nice, long series to binge on this fine, fine Wednesday. That's right. As we move closer and closer to Bleakmas. <laughs> We're almost there. We are almost there. Um, how are you guys doing today? I feel great. Yes. Do we want to talk about um, your sober January experiences, guys? Yeah, so far so good. Yes. My, I feel like Benjamin Button, like I'm aging backwards suddenly. <laughs> like my skin's all bouncy and taut. I'm like, wow, drinking really dries you out, doesn't it? Sure does. A week and I feel like a new person. <laughs> I'm drinking a uh, mocktail old-fashioned right now, mm-hmm. which... Like I, 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 it tastes like watered down maple syrup, but I'm, uh, I'm leaning into it. I'm having my 15th sparkling water of the day. <laughs> to be honest, you probably should just be drinking alcohol at this point. I know. <laughs> Spark- that much sparkling water is not doing you any favors. It's not. What's wrong with it? Drinking that much sparkling water, there's no way that that is good for your anything. What? Well, it's it's not hitting your. It's I don't natural. think it's ruining your liver. <laughs> it isn't making my liver work hard, but yeah, it's yeah. probably not for the skin. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have not partaken in dry January because I don't like to restrict anything. So I'm happy for you guys um, and everybody else, I guess, out there that is doing it. But what day is it today, Billy? Today is January 19th. It's brew a potion day. Ooh, Ooh witchy. Yes. But there's a lot, though. There's good memory day. Which... How many good memories are really made in January, you know? <laughs> Just the bleak miss ones. Bleak miss yeah. memories. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's National Popcorn Day. Mm, get stuck mm. in your teeth. Not for me. Not, yeah, no. if you're at the movie theater, yeah. It's also, this, this one I found, um, they're getting very existentialist here. Tenderness Toward Existence Day on oh. January 19th. But existence hurts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's why you have to be tender towards it. <laughs> Show it a little, a little love. Okay. Give it a little cuddle. And All this right. event doesn't have a sponsor or anything. It's just out there. And it's also Artist as Outlaw Day. That uh, artists are outlaws like the Beatles and Bob Dylan wow. are two examples. Celebrating hmm. outlaw artists. Okay. You, you missed the best day of them all, Billy. Tin Can Day. Tin Can. <laughs> <laughs> I did see that. I didn't know. I didn't realize you were, you were such a big... Tin can fan. Tin can aficionado. And, like the pictures of the tin can day is just a bunch of like used, like smushed up tin cans. Like you would get in cranberries. Yeah. And again, no sponsor or anything. It's just somebody 
somebody did it and that was it. Usually we use check I day and they usually have like a story uh-huh. or like at least an explanation. Tin can day has nothing. nothing. Tin can day is observed <laughs> Wednesday, January 19th. It is observed annually on January 19th. That's all it says. I think we might have to put uh tin can as part of bleakness. I think there must be a tin can. Type that of is thing. a treat. The pull topper. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. You gotta like t- kick a tin can down the road or something. <laughs> so you, you wrap it up and give it to the person you like the least. <laughs> yes. Oh, you should put something in it. Or, but I guess maybe it's used. I don't know. We'll, you know, we'll finesse this. And <laughs> Listen, the holidays, when Christmas came out, it wasn't all set. It wasn't like reindeer and, and presents and everything. And, yeah. And talkings. This is going to be an evolving thing. Bleak and, so just- and you know what? Sometimes your first idea is the best. So maybe we just go with it and we'll just finesse as we mm-hmm. go, as the years go on. You decorate the tin can. So That's enjoy finesse. your tin can, you dirty bastards. We'll be selling tin cans on the firstdegreepodcast.com <laughs> soon. All right. Well, hogs and beanie babies. And uh, the Billy toy. Okay. Well, that was amazing. That's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. As we conclude with our three-part series on the Gainesville Ripper, we still have our first-degree Sonia with us today, who experienced the terror inflicted on the community firsthand as a medical student living in Gainesville, living in the same building where the first two murders occurred. As a refresher, at the end of our last episode, we left off with the police finally tracking down and arresting the true Gainesville Ripper, 36-year-old Danny Rawling. He was charged with the murder of Sonia Larson, Christy Powell, Krista Hoyt, Manny Taboda, and Tracy Pauls. And at this point, the authorities had also come to suspect that Danny was responsible for the murders of Tom, Julie, and Sean Grissom in Shreveport, Louisiana. Residents of Gainesville were cautiously optimistic about Danny's arrest, but the police had gotten it wrong before, when they wrongly zeroed in on 19-year-old Ed Humphrey as their main suspect. So did the authorities finally have the real Ripper in custody? And would the Gainesville victims ultimately get justice? Before he would stand trial for the slayings, Rawling would be tried for the robberies that he committed before and after the Gainesville Ripper murders. Stemming from those charges, he was given four life sentences plus 185 years. He was also convicted of bank robbery. And at this point, Danny was transferred to Florida State Prison to await his trial. Once Danny got to jail, he settled in and he made friends pretty quickly. One such friend was an inmate named Bobby Lewis who was infamous for being the only inmate to ever escape death row in Florida. During their conversations, Danny made inferences that he was involved with the Gainesville murders. And it quickly became very clear to Bobby that Danny was the Ripper. Always the hustler, Bobby came up with a genius idea. He and Danny could sell Danny's confessions to a woman named Sandra London, who at the time was a self-described journalist and true crime author who had previously written a story about Bobby's infamous death row escape. And as soon as Danny read the story Sandra wrote about Bobby, Danny was on board. He agreed to sell his Gainesville Ripper confessions to Sandra, who could in turn write a book. Now, this endeavor would be highly controversial 
It would draw a slew of attention. It was going to sell like hotcakes, potentially. And it was going to make a win-win situation for both Danny and Sandra. Okay, but before we go any further, who exactly is Sandra London? So it turns out Sandra didn't start her career writing about true crime. She actually started her career in the world of writing exciting computer manuals. But then, in January of 89, everything changed for Sandra when she read Anne Rule's book, The Stranger Beside Me, the story about Anne's relationship working alongside Ted Bundy at a crisis hotline. It was then that Sandra thought to herself, I could write a similar book. Because Sandra had actually dated suspected serial killer G.J. Schaefer for a year in high school. It was the perfect topic. It was then she decided she was going to be the next Anne Rule. That's a tall order. Very tall order. (laughs) Jesus. So before we pivot back to the Rawling storyline, we're going to take a moment to tell you about this G.J. Schaefer situation going on. So Schaefer, who was a cop at the time, was on patrol when he picked up two teenage girls who were hitchhiking before taking them into a forest, tying them to trees, and threatening them. But luckily, before he could go any further, Schaefer was called to another location over his police radio. So he left, but not before he promised the girls that he would be back. After Schaefer left, the girls were able to free themselves and make it to a nearby police station, which coincidentally turned out to be Schaefer's station. The girls told the officers what happened, and they believed them, thankfully. Yeah, seriously, that guy must have been a real piece of shit. If they, <laughs> if they, if somebody comes in and says one of your one of your guys did this to us, they all knew. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, they all knew. Oh yeah. Schaefer was arrested for false imprisonment and assault, but when you know it, he was released on bond. Two months later, he would go on to abduct, torture, and murder two other teenage girls. He was caught in October of 73. Schaefer was convicted of two counts of murder and was sentenced to life. While he was only ever convicted of two murders, many believe Schaefer is responsible for far more murders. Police have connected him to upwards of 30 disappearances. Okay, so it turns out that Sandra had dated this guy 10 years before he was outed as a potential serial killer. And this is what she was going to write about. So she started writing to him in prison, and over the course of the next few years, he wrote short stories which allegedly contained real descriptions of the crimes he'd committed. Sandra released the short stories in a collection she titled Killer Fiction. The book became a hit among prisoners across the country. So she started receiving many letters from inmates, asking her to cover their stories. Inmates like Bobby Lewis, the man Danny Rawling befriended in Florida State Prison. Danny Rawling wrote to Sandra in July of 1992. He introduced himself by saying, quote, I am Danny Rawling. I'm sure you've heard of me. Danny told Sandra that news outlets had tried to get a copy of the tape that police had found in his tent. You know, the one where he was singing multiple songs, that he apologized to his family and more. The one that we talked about in last week's episode that was insane. So Danny asked Sandra if she'd like to be the first to, quote, get her hands on it. He wrote that the tape is, quote, Powerful stuff. Yes, sirree, you betcha. It's one of the most unusual and entertaining cassettes you will ever hear. Weird quote. Not long after sending this letter, Danny was actually sent to a mental health facility where he would be evaluated for the next six months. Then, while Danny was gone, Bobby Lewis started meeting with the Gainesville Ripper Task Force. Turns out, Bobby was a double-crosser. And he decided that he wanted to get a reduced sentence in exchange for telling authorities what Danny had told him. 
But each time Bobby set up a meeting, the task force told him that they would not give him any sort of deal. Bobby never gave up, though. And once Danny was back from the mental health facility, Bobby talked him into declaring Bobby his confessor. Bobby then told prison officials that Danny finally wanted to talk to the task force about the Gainesville murders, with Bobby acting as his confessor. An interview was set for February of 1993. So prior to that date, authorities explained to Bobby how the interview would go. Bobby would serve as Danny's mouthpiece during the interview, and Danny would verify the accuracy of each of Bobby's statements. Both men agreed to these terms. Throughout the interview, police would finally learn what really happened to the Gainesville college students who had been brutally murdered. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor Meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor Meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Stodd, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. With the help of fellow inmate Bobby Lewis, Danny Rowling began telling the task force about the murders. In the early morning hours of August 24th, 1990, he broke into 18-year-old Sonia Larson and 17-year-old Christy Powell's apartment via the rear door of their apartment. And if you recall, our first-degree Sonia lived in the same apartment complex at the same time, a stone's throw away from where it happened. Where the two girls got killed, they had a bigger unit, and so they were sort of on the second and third floors, but still had a door out the back to the wooded area. And then there was a door, you know, in the front of the building that would have been in the shared like hallway, but the doors to the back to the woods, just your unit had that door. He detailed how he used a screwdriver to break in through the rear door. He was armed with a pistol and a Marine Corps K-bar knife, which has a seven inch fixed blade. 
Once inside the apartment, Danny found Christy asleep on the downstairs couch. He stood over her for a while, but he didn't wake her. Then he decided to go upstairs where he found Sonia sleeping in her bedroom. As Sonia laid in bed, Danny stabbed her in the upper chest area, then put a double strip of duct tape over her mouth. When Sonia started fighting back, Danny continued to stab her. She stayed conscious around a minute, but eventually succumbed to her wounds. Danny went back downstairs to where Christy was sleeping. He put a double strip of tape over her mouth and taped her hands behind her back. Christy was awake when Danny cut off her clothes with a knife. Then Danny raped Christy while threatening her with a knife. When he was done, Danny made Christy lie face down on the floor near the couch. He then stabbed her five times in the back. And this is so horrific. I can't imagine what the task force members were really thinking at this moment. They're sitting there listening to this man describe how he brutally stole these two lives. Right. And there's one more little tidbit Rawling offered about how he selected these first two victims. Now, remember this apartment building. You know our first degree Sonia lived in the same building. And it turns out that Rawling hid in the back of the woods in the back of the apartment complex. And these woods lined the back door of Sonia's apartment, our first degree. And uh, this was going on while Sonia was living there. At some point, finding out that he was back there camping in the woods that are right behind the apartment and looking for petite brunette women, that was his type. That's pretty much, I think, why he picked all the women that he did. It was based on that. It was scary to know that he was back there and I'm sure he saw me because I was out in the back and with the cat and let, leaving the door open and, you know, sweeping outside <laughs> back there. You know, I just moved in, you know, the things that you do when you just move into a place, putting my little porch chairs out back. It, 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 it seems really unreal. You know, it feels like one of those things where you're particularly blessed or cursed and you're not sure which one it is, you know, to be in that same building was obviously not great, but not being the right type for him was, was wonderful, you know, not unfortunate for the other Sonia and her roommate, but, you know, really, really sad. They were so young. It's really tragic, you know, looking back. How terrifying that he just as easily could have selected her apartment. Like these back doors are all facing these woods. Yeah. And he's literally sitting back there staring at the residents, choosing his victims. It's so scary. Oh, I like can't imagine it. And then like thinking back to like any time that she went back there and he could have been watching her at any moment. It's fucking terrifying. And that's a selling point for these. I've, I've stayed in some of these apartments that, I mean, they're all over the place, especially in college campuses where it's just like this place a little bit off the, the main row of the college campuses, but it's quiet and everybody likes it. And it's not like you have a ton of lights in the back there. either. Yeah. You're not thinking that somebody is like creeping back there looking into your apartment. It's the last thing you're thinking. Yep. Danny continued with his disturbing confession. During the evening hours of August 25th, he went to 18-year-old Krista Hoyt's apartment. He had been stalking her and it even peeked into her bedroom a few days earlier. He broke in by prying the sliding glass door open with a screwdriver. He had the same pistol and the same knife he used when he attacked Sonia and Christy only 42 hours earlier. Once inside, he realized Krista wasn't home, so he waited for her in the bedroom, so now he's laying in wait. When she arrived home, Danny surprised Krista from behind. 
He put her in a chokehold and subdued her after a brief struggle. Then he taped her mouth and hands and led her into the bedroom. There he cut and tore off Krista's clothes, forced her onto the bed, all while threatening her with a knife. Danny raped Krista, turned her face down into the bed, and stabbed her through the back. Before leaving, Danny posed Krista's body. Then he went to a gas station. While there, he realized he didn't have his wallet. So he panicked, thinking he left it at the scene. So he went back to Krista's place, and while searching for his wallet, he decided to stay for a while and do some more staging. It was at this point that he did some particularly disturbing things with Krista's body. So I'm not going to get into the details of what he did, but he basically wanted the entire scene to resemble the French sculpture titled The Thinker. And you can Google that and do do what you want, but the details are a little out there. Danny continued with his confessions. On August 27th, at around 3 a.m., Danny broke into the apartment of Tracy Pauls and Manny Tabota, both 23 years old. And just like he had done at Krista's apartment just over 24 hours earlier, Danny pried open the sliding glass door with the screwdriver. He still had the same pistol and knife with him. He went into one of the bedrooms and found Manny asleep. Manny woke up as Danny stabbed him multiple times. While Manny tried to fight Danny off, the commotion woke up Tracy. As Danny continued stabbing Manny, Tracy made her way to Manny's room to see what was going on. When Tracy saw Danny covered in Manny's blood, she ran back to her bedroom. She locked the door and tried to barricade herself as fast as she could. But Danny was able to break down her door. And before he could attack her, Tracy like yelled and screamed and asked Danny, you're the one, aren't you? And he said, yeah, I'm the one. This had to be absolutely terrifying. The fear of realizing you're about to die at the hands of a killer you know has been terrorizing your town. It's straight out of a horror movie. Danny subdued Tracy, taped her mouth and hands, then cut or tore off her shirt. He raped her and threatened her with his knife. Then he turned Tracy over and stabbed her three times in the back. Before leaving, Danny cleaned and posed Tracy's body. Investigators wanted to know, why had Danny done this? Danny gave them two motives. The first, he wanted to kill one person for each of the eight years he spent in prison. In the second, he wanted to become a superstar. Danny also told the task force about how he dealt with different personalities all his life. He told police about his two darker personalities. One was Enad, could be pronouncing that wrong, but who cares? It's his weird serial killer second personality. And I guess it's Danny spelled backwards, which is not a pretty sound. Stupid. And he said that while he was Enad, he was a bad person, but he wasn't evil. However, Danny said his other personality, Gemini, was evil and wanted to show the world that evil beings exist. Okay, Gemini is the most generic, that's my bad twin. Really, dude? Yeah. Also, I will say this. This is 1980. This is 1990. 1989, the Batman movie came out. Prince did the soundtrack. Remember, he did the bat dance thing. He dressed up as a character that he called Gemini, and it was very much in the, oh my God. In the sort of vernacular because Batman in 89 was huge. That's where he got it from, I'm telling you. Well, right. It's also, though, but Danny was telling the task force that Gemini was the person who was the Gainesville Ripper, right. not him. Yeah, He's like, Gemini him. is the murderer, not me. Yes, I am but a, I am but mm-hmm. an innocent passenger mm-hmm. to this journey. <laughs> yeah, dude. 
So by the end of this meeting, Danny had confessed to killing all five Gainesville students. However, Danny would not confess to the Grissom killings, claiming that he had absolutely nothing to do with these murders. And remember, earlier he told the task force that one of his motives for the Ripper murders was to kill someone for each of the eight years that he was in prison. There were only five Ripper victims, meaning that he had killed three other people. So if it wasn't these three members of the Grissom family, who was it? So after meeting with the task force, Danny decided to send yet another letter to author Sandra London, once again expressing his desire to work with her on a book. He also put Sandra on his list of visitors. He put her down as a friend, not as a journalist, and that's going to become an important distinction later. The Department of Corrections reached out to Sandra, asking if she wanted to come visit Danny. And of course, she said yes. Sandra couldn't say no to a serial killer. She couldn't say no to this juicy, exclusive story. Sandra is just generally very cringy, and unfortunately for us, Sandra would later describe what it was like to meet Danny Rawling for the very first time. And when he's in court, he's always very upset and sad. Every picture that had been published always had a sad face. And he turned to me, just smiled the sweetest smile at me, and I found myself immensely attracted to him. As a man, he made me feel like a woman. I had been very nervous. How would we get along? How would we really feel together? And we just slid into each other so naturally. We would be having a conversation on two sides of glass. We were separated by glass. We had one guard there monitoring us. And we would be talking about the things that were going on, like his confessions. And one of us would be looking at the other, talking, and the other one was talking away. And the other one would just go... So, Sandra and Danny's relationship moved very quickly, to say the least, because in the very same month that they'd met, which was February of 1993, Danny and Sandra got engaged. Danny then gave Sandra the exclusive rights to all of his confessions, all of his writings, art, songs, and so much more, all of the things that we were just dying to see. And Sandra wasn't done. She then talked Danny into forwarding all correspondence from authors and broadcast media companies directly to her. She wanted to be the only person to tell the real story of the Gainesville Ripper. She wanted all the credit. And eventually, it got to the point where Danny no longer responded to the media unless it was proved by Sandra herself. ABC News later described Sandra as being more like an agent than a journalist, which kind of seems accurate, seeming like everything that she is doing for him. While Danny awaited trial, the newly engaged couple started working on this book together. Danny wrote stories about his life, as well as confessions to the Ripper murders. Sandra planned to intertwine Danny's writings and her own writings into this true crime book. But as soon as the Department of Corrections found out Sandra was writing a book, she was banned from visiting Danny in prison. The department felt like Sandra had misrepresented herself in order to visit Danny. She had said she was his friend, not a journalist. And this wasn't the only obstacle Sandra faced. It wasn't long after she was banned from visiting Danny that the state of Florida sued her under a law similar to New York's Son of Sam law, which prohibits criminals from profiting off of the publicity of their crimes. The lawsuit was premature. Sandra hadn't even finished the book yet, but it was clear that the state of Florida was over Danny Rawlings and his constant need for attention. The state argued that because Sandra was engaged to Danny, 
she shouldn't be allowed to keep any profits she makes from writing about Danny. Sondra countered by saying her relationship with Danny had no relation to any of her writings. While the lawsuit made its way through multiple appeals, Sondra and Danny kept writing their book. In the meantime, Danny actually won an appeal and was going to be resentenced for one of his earlier robbery convictions, the one that he'd committed at a Winn-Dixie store in September of 1990, the one that led to his eventual capture. Sandra attended the resentencing, and before he was given his new sentence, Danny was asked if he wanted to say anything to the court. He didn't have much to say, but he did have a song to sing, God Help Us All. I recall the day I first saw you I reached out to say I love you But it was hard to say I couldn't touch you So tell me, baby, what were my words? All my tears run together Down the path you choose to follow Tell me, baby, what were my words? All my tears run together What were my words? All my tears run together, baby Just like rain we highly encourage you to Google this and, and look at this because for those who and for those who don't and has haven't seen this, what's happening in the video? So after the judge asked Danny if he wants to say anything, his his attorney looks over at him and says, "Don't do it, don't do it, <laughs> please Dan- don't." No, and Danny like makes a happy little like sneaky face, like he's like ha ha ha, and then he stands up and he starts singing. You just heard it. I don't have to reiterate, but <laughs> Danny then sings, and it's just a sight to see. Like again, Dude. put it on. It's on YouTube. Go, go look it up. Uh, Danny Rawlings singing, and also they. <laughs> Okay, number one, everybody else that's in that room is like, what the fuck is going on? And then Sandra is like sitting like 15 feet away from him. And they the the camera's like panning to him and then panning to her and then panning to him and panning to her. And she's just like sitting there like she's watching like angels sing her like serenade her like she is enamored by this guy. She's like clutching her necklace like this is the best moment of her life. Yeah, she's beaming. That's beaming. The, she is absolutely beaming while this is happening. She just won Miss America. She's about to start waving in that little cup hand wave. It, it is so ridiculously bizarre. And bizarre. especially for the fact that, you know, you have family members in the courtroom like thinking about stuff and you've got this guy singing. You've got this woman over there looking over at him like he's the greatest thing Masturbating in, the world. in court. Uh, like it's too now, much. that girl, she is horny for him. <laughs> Ew. Or his money, just money. She sees dollar signs. Sure. No, she seems. I think that love was real. I think. I think that she is so fucked up that 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 love is real. Yeah, because she just she just thinks she fell in love with the idea of the book. She's like the book. I'm going to write about this yes. shit, man. Mm-hmm. Like she's in love she with her to own be the story. Next rule. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So following Danny's song, the judge tells him, "We are not here to address your friend. We are here for sentencing." Then he resentenced Danny to the same sentence as before, life in prison. Now, outside, all the reporters, because Danny goes off into prison, all the reporters want to speak to one person, and that's Sandra. And they asked how she was feeling following the hearing, and she has this huge smile on her face, and she says, I'm kind of excited right now because Danny loves me. My God. Ew. What the fuck? Terrible. So as attorneys prepared for Danny's February 94 trial, the media focused on Sandra and Danny's bizarro world relationship, and it just kept getting more and more to be this train 
wreck no one could look away from. And the Washington Post wrote what most people were thinking, quote, the sensible members of society would prefer to look at these people and declare them a freak show. Their emotions do not register as legitimate. We want to say this is not love. Love is supposed to be grander, cleaner, more sensible than whatever this thing is that has drawn the journalist and this alleged murderer together. Mm, Well said. Yeah. So in an interview with The Post, Sandra admitted that she knows that people think that she's a joke, an airhead, a death row groupie, a fringe journalist who will do anything for a buck. But she said that none of these things are true. She loved Danny and not because he was a murderer. She loved Danny for who he was as a person, which he was a murderer, but whatever. Sandra also said, quote, I could have exploited him without pretending to love him. It wasn't necessary to get the story. I already had the story. Once it happened, I was only honest enough to admit it. And Danny apparently shared the same feelings as Sandra. He wrote to the Post, quote, My relationship with Sandra runs as deep as the Amazon River and just as wild. She is an extremely exciting woman. My feelings for her are my feelings. Just the mention of her name sends my heart racing to her. She is without a doubt my soulmate, and I thank God above for sending her my way. This is all like a very grotesque display because, you know, let's be clear here. Despite never even touching this man, Sandra claimed to love Danny so much that she wrote a song for him and recorded herself singing it while wearing some crazy kiss makeup. (laughs) She looks like a clown, a crazy clown. It's like a kiss makeup, but also like looks like she might be on Cats. But also like Mm -hmm. uh, like Depeche Mode 1980s. Like there's also an 80s music video vibe I'm getting. (laughs) Well, you know I'm right. <laughs> it is very in 1980s music video. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, this is like the. If she was wearing a purple bodysuit, I would like with sparkles on it. I would buy this whole look for the 80s. Yeah. Between the land of the living and the land of the dead, there's a place they call Death Row, where all the fallen angels slow. So clearly, this relationship between Sandra and Danny had created quite the spectacle. How exactly was this going to play out in the trial? On February 15th of 1994, Danny Rawlings' trial was set to begin. Both the prosecution and defense were ready to present their case to the jury. They had their witnesses all lined up and ready to go. But then, just before the trial was about to begin, Danny said that he wanted to address the court. He said, quote, Your Honor, I've been running from first one thing and then another all my life. But there are some things that you just can't run from, and this being one of those. Danny said he wanted to plead guilty to all counts. That is an interesting... I I did not see that coming. No. And just like another like little spectacle for him. Yeah. Like, oh, you're such a martyr. <laughs> you're so, wow, what integrity. Is that what we're supposed to think? That there's a man of conviction right there. Yeah, absolutely. 
And, and remember, when he first, if you listen to the tape in the beginning, he was saying how he wasn't going to get caught. He was going to go out in this sort of, in a blaze of glory, that kind of thing. So, yeah. you know, he's consistently kind of, you know, backing up on things. Uh, it's not unheard of uh, when we're looking at this guy. Mm -hmm. So he pleads guilty. And next up is the sentencing phase where the jury would decide if Danny should be sentenced to life or death. But first, a jury needed to be picked. The process started on February 16th and ended up taking about three weeks because the court wanted to make sure the jurors were, without a doubt, impartial and unbiased. The penalty phase began on March 7th with the state telling the jury that Danny committed the murders for one reason only. He loved it. And the reason why he posed the victims, well, that was simply to shock the police when they found the bodies. The state warned jurors that pictures of the crime scene were so disturbing, they may end up offering counseling. And the state wasn't exaggerating. One juror told the Miami Herald later that the pictures were so horrendous and upsetting that they didn't sleep for three days. The defense presented mitigating factors for why Danny shouldn't be sentenced to death. One main factor, they argued, was the abuse Danny faced at the hands of his father. Three psychiatrists all testified that the abuse Danny faced as a child drove him to voyeurism and violence. Hearing the defense make excuses for Danny's behavior is incredibly upsetting to the victim's families, of course. Christy Powell's friend Allison later told 2020 that it was a slap in the face. She said, quote, it was like, here's a reason he killed the person you loved. So let's go easy on him. And Danny's defense pointed to Danny's mental illness. The same three psychiatrists testified that Danny had borderline personality disorder, and that was characterized by anger, immaturity, anxiety, unstable relationships, and mood swings. They said that while he was mentally ill, Danny was still sane when he committed the murders. The psychiatrist also brought up how Danny believed that he had other personalities, like the evil Gemini, who Danny said was the person responsible for the murders. The psychiatrist made it clear in their testimonies that Danny did not have multiple personalities. On March 24th, after deliberating for only five hours, the jury had enough. They had reached a verdict. Moments before it was read, Sandra blew Danny a kiss from the gallery. Sick. Gross. According to the Miami Herald, Danny slowly rubbed his hands, pursed his lips, and nodded almost imperceptibly as the jury's recommendation for a death sentence was read aloud. On April 20th, Judge Stan Morris sentenced Danny to death for each murder and life for each of the other charges. So because Danny was sentenced to death, he was never charged with the Grissom family murders. However, the case was closed because authorities were convinced Danny was the killer, even though he denied it. This had to be really sad for the Grissom family's friends and family. They'd never get the opportunity to see the killer have his day in court. They would never get the justice they wanted. Yeah, and I think the thing is, the, probably the reason why he didn't admit it is because he killed a child. And he knew that if he mm. was in prison, even though he was on death row, being in prison and being a child killer is something that would make his life a lot more hellish than it already was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting point. So two years after Danny was sentenced to death, he and Sandra released The Making of a Serial Killer, the real story of the Gainesville murders. And following the release, the nation was obviously disgusted with Sandra, and they wondered how she could work so closely with the serial killer to tell his absolutely disgusting story. In response to the criticism that she received, Sandra said that she wrote the book with Danny because she liked to get into the minds of serial killers, and she wanted to understand and humanize them. 
But the public didn't believe Sandra. It didn't seem like she was doing a service to mankind at all. It just seemed like she wanted attention. The families of the Ripper victims were greatly hurt and surely disgusted by Sandra's actions. They felt like she turned the whole case into a circus, a show about herself and never about the five victims. And that certainly was the case. Mm -hmm. Instead of focusing on the five young lives lost to the hands of a brutal killer, like we did in those first episodes, the media were busy interviewing Sandra, asking her what it was like to be in love with a serial killer. They obsessed over getting Sandra to say something they could use as a juicy soundbite. Yeah, I think Sandra is very limited. Like she has the inability to see herself from other people's perspectives. And she's like, she falls into her narcissism where she's just completely tunnel visioned on, she's feeding this addiction to attention. It really seems like it. And she's just like doubling down on what she thinks is whatever. It's very, very bizarre. Very disturbing. So if all of this wasn't bad enough already, Sandra eventually just up and dumped Danny after she released the book. That's what you get, dude. Classic. She was after, you know, one thing, her 15 minutes. So Sandra later told Florida Today about the breakup. Ooh, the drama. She said that throughout their relationship, she knew Danny was receiving mail from other women. How dare he? Mm. She always told Danny it wasn't right for her to keep him all to herself. She kept telling him that as soon as the book was done, he was free. But when the book was done, Danny said he wanted to be in a monogamous relationship with Sandra. And she was okay with that. But as time went on, the reality of the whole situation, quote, just became grimmer and grimmer. It started to finally set in that Sandra was engaged to a man she would never touch, visit in prison, but still she stuck with Danny. Then Sandra found out Danny had been writing to other women after all. Even though he said he wanted to be monogamous, go figure. (laughs) Women that were allowed to visit him, unlike Sandra... Oh, hell no. This was the last straw. She ended the relationship. They'll always find a way to talk to another woman, you know? <laughs> even <laughs> even if you're literally the worst kind of person, you have no money, you're a serial killer, you're literally in jail for life. It's like... You're still going to fucking cheat on your girlfriend or your, fiance, or your wife, whatever. Whatever she is, you're still yeah. going to find a way. They always do. Ah, uh, man. So the state of Florida didn't care that Danny and Sandra were no longer together, obviously. It didn't change the fact that the state didn't want her making any sort of profit off of Danny's horrific crimes. Now that the book was on sale, the state went after Sandra for any money that she had made on the book or any sales related to Danny. So for example, Sandra often sold Danny's artwork and autographs, which is so fucking sleazy. Sandra appealed the state's lawsuit, saying Danny never received one cent of any of the profits that she had made. In 1998, a judge ruled in the state's favor, saying Sandra's relationship with Danny was, quote, unique and special, and therefore the son of Sam law could be applied to Sandra. The judge basically said that Danny was supplying the material to Sandra, who was then acting on his behalf when it came to the marketing and profiting. Kind of like an agent, like we talked about. The judge ordered that all profits Sandra made, which was around 20 grand, would be seized. And for quite a while after this ruling, Sandra refused to pay the money and fought the judge's decision. But in the end, she was forced to pay the money, something she is still upset about to this day. Boo-hoo. <laughs> Poor thing. On October 25th, 2006, after spending 12 years on death row, Danny's day of execution arrived. 
47 people showed up to watch this execution take place, including 16 family members and friends of the five college students and three members of the Grissom family. Danny did not offer any last words. Instead, in true Danny fashion, he sang a gospel hymn in what the Gainesville Sun described as being a clear, calm voice that rang through the room. Ew. He sang, quote, Thou art the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. The sound of thy voice stills a mighty wind. None greater than thee, O Lord, none greater than thee. As he was belting out his final tune, Danny's microphone was shut off at 6.01 p.m. The lethal injection was administered, and the man who inspired the movie Scream was pronounced dead at 6.13 p.m. The whole world was paying attention. The Gainesville Ripper had horrified the nation, and those who were in Gainesville when the slayings were happening will probably never recover from this trauma. Danny Rawling was dead. There was relief, at least in these communities. And our first degree, Sonia, was paying attention, too. We asked her to describe how she felt knowing that the man who had caused her and the whole town of Gainesville so much fear and anxiety had finally been executed. I'm not a big capital punishment person because of wrongful convictions and all the eyewitness things or whatever, but I'm glad he's not in the world to, you know, to continue the spectacle because I'm sure he would have. I mean, just think about he about all the the press he got after, you know, it's just, it's, it's disgusting. He's a disgusting person. Following the execution, it was revealed that Danny had actually written a letter confessing to the Grissom family murders. He had slipped the letter to a minister saying he wanted to confess for two reasons. One, to clear the original suspect, which is Julie Grissom's fiance, and the other to show his regret to the family. Danny wrote, in order to fulfill all things that no stone be unturned, hereby I make a formal written statement concerning the murders of Julie, Tom, and Sean Grissom in my hometown of Shreveport, Louisiana. Hal Carter, Julie Gerson's former fiance, is 100% innocent, totally pure of that crime. I, and I alone am guilty. It was my hand that took those precious lights out of this old, dark world. With all my heart and soul, would I could bring them back, I would. Being a native son of Shreveport, I can only offer this confession of deep-felt remorse over the loss of such fine, outstanding souls. Danny's confession letter still left some questions unanswered, like why he killed the Grissom family. To this day, it's unclear how Danny chose the Grissoms. Some sources say he saw Julie working at Dillard's and became fixated on her there. But as far as how he killed the family, well, according to Danny's friend and mouthpiece, Bobby Lewis, Danny told him how the family was murdered. Bobby recalled Danny's confession. He said the old man was outside doing some barbecuing or watering the yard or something. He went and put a knife to him, took him in the house and tied him up, taped up the old man, the girl and the kid. Then he took the old man into the utility room and killed him first, came back into the living room, took the kid, then killed him, and then took the girl into the bedroom, raped her and killed her and did all kinds of stuff to her. So if what Bobby said is true, then Danny's murder of the Grissom family was a very similar MO to how he perpetrated his other awful, sickening murders. Danny Rawling affected so many lives with his evil actions. Eight victims and their family and their friends. The innocent 18-year-old Edward Humphrey. The jury members who had to see the horrific photos of what Danny did to the bodies. And let's not forget the entire town of Gainesville. 
50,000 residents, 42,000 students, frozen in fear for months, all because of Danny Harold Rawling. We asked our first degree Sonia to describe the PTSD that she faced after Danny destroyed the small college town she had once felt so safe in. It just so happened that when I left Gainesville and moved to Miami, shortly thereafter, Hurricane Andrew hit and there was just devastation and trauma. And I'll never forget the way people walked around after Hurricane Andrew, just with this like look on their face. So many people lost everything that with those two things back to back, I sort of felt for a while like maybe I was a curse and I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure, you know, if I moved somewhere else, if something horrible was going to happen. Obviously, I internalized some part of, I don't know, me being associated with bad things, which is sad, you know, to be a young person like that and and to have even had that thought. But I think as more traumatic things, you know, I'm 57, so more traumatic things happen in your life. We also asked Sonia what she's taken away from her unique perspective, unique, terrifying experience of living just next door to where two young students' lives were stolen. And what she had to say is poignant. It's a shame when you let somebody like him have an effect on you. You know, you wish you wouldn't. It's like when somebody's really mean to you and it ruins your day. Uh, You know, I, I remember a long time ago, somebody told me, you know, you shouldn't give that person the power over how your day is going. And I kind of feel like that way about Danny Rawling, you know, I think it's a shame that he was able to affect so many people beyond those he murdered affect their college experience. I think that's really a shame. The scary movies you watch often seem unbelievable. We like to think villains are completely made up by some writer, not based on true events. But the truth is, you never know what the inspiration behind a villain might be. The man behind the mask could be based on a real person, a real sick motherfucker like Danny Rawling, who was the inspiration behind the movie Scream. And while Danny Rawling didn't wear a ghost face mask when he took the lives of eight innocent people, he was still scary enough to base an entire film franchise on. And that's pretty fucking terrifying. huge thank you to Sonia for being our first degree for the past three episodes. If you're out there and you have a story to tell, please email us hello at thefirstdegreepodcast.com. You can follow us on Instagram at thefirstdegree, at Alexis Linkletter, at Billy Jensen, at Jack Vanek. Join our Facebook group by searching the first degree up on the search bar. We are talking true crime all the time. And stick around tomorrow because we'll have a brand new episode of Killing Time right in your feed. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close. But not that close. Happy tin can day. Kick that tin can down the street. Use it as your tree topper next year. (laughs) Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing by Haley Gray. Sources for this episode are the Indianapolis News, the Shreveport Times, ABC News, Sandra London's YouTube channel, (laughs) the Chicago Tribune, (laughs) the Shreveport Journal, Florida Today, and court documents. And as always, our first three guests is always our largest source.